welcome to the Science Witch Podcast, where we explore how science and witchcraft intersect, interact, and affirm one another. I'm your co-host, Angel. And I'm your co-host, Enku. And this is the 19th episode and our inaugural episode together. Yay! I'm really excited we are now working on this project together because we've known each other for so long. We've been friends since the sixth grade. And this is a great way to get to share our knowledge about science and witchcraft and also get to hang out a lot more (laughs) on Zoom. Which we'd probably be doing anyway and talking about science and witchcraft. So, you know, it makes sense to record it and share it. Today's episode is about big tree energy. And this is an episode that I've been writing for quite some time because of how deeply and spiritually connected to this topic I am. Big trees are some of the things I seek out and find on my own personal expense because I find them to be so spiritual, wise, and reverent to be in the presence of, more so than churches ever were for me. And I know you have also had some really divine experiences with big trees. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'll say I'm, I am someone who has had spiritual experiences in churches with stained glass and vaulted ceilings. But to me, big trees give me that same sensation, that same sense of awe and stillness. And I feel like they're both really powerful places into the divine. It's almost like you kind of can't help it. Um, at least speaking from my experience, uh, when I'm in those spaces. Yeah, well, before we get to the topic, though, we wanted to let folks know that we are going to be adding more Patreon content, including a map that has a location of all the big trees that we discussed throughout this episode, as well as other big trees found throughout the world. And we will continue to update this as this is an ever-evolving quest. So for only $1 a month, you can join at this level that gives you access to this content. At the $5 level, you get to join the monthly deity sticker tier, which every month you'll get to receive a sticker of a god or goddess. And the artwork will be either from me or an invited artist. And Ingu actually is also quite an artist. So the stickers will have different themes and deities throughout the different months to kind of correspond with the wheel of the year. And it can also be used in a devotional practice or simply to decorate your space and bring some energy and awareness to that deity. Finally, the top level is the Science Witch Coven, which now that Inku is part of the podcast, we can both have various offerings for the individual members at this level. In line with the sciency and witchy life. My husband and I have a small organic herbalism business, Goat and Thistle, and one of the main herbal allies that I've been working with is also one of my favorite trees. I call her Mimosa, but the Latin name is Albizia julibrisin, or other common names are the Persian silk tree, or as Southern Living likes to call her, the quote, wonderful, awful weed. She is sometimes seen as invasive, and she was already on the land that I am now stewarding, and so I didn't plant her, but I've gotten very close to her over the time that I've been here. And she's not really a big tree. She only gets to about 50 feet in height, so we won't be going into a lot of detail about Mimosa on this episode specifically, but I do love her, and she has some really big energy for me. And so 
she's going to be included in a tea blend that we'll be sending out. Uh, it's a homemade handcrafted tea blend, all organic and ethically sourced, and it, um, at least for mimosa, hand-picked. And it also includes Rose Petal, which is the next episode that we'll be coming out with for the Science Witch podcast. If you're one of our patrons at the coven level of $10 a month, in addition to beautiful stickers, you'll also get this tea blend. We'll put a link in the show notes where you can check out some more tea and the rest of our current tea blends at Goat and Thistle. Yeah, awesome. And now let's talk big tree energy. Before I was a scientist or even knew to call myself a witch, I talked to trees. And my mother tells me as a child, I would spend hours in a magnolia tree that was at the edge of our yard and talk to this tree. And I remember always being connected to the trees in a way I was sad to learn that the other people that I was around weren't Mm -hmm. as I got older. And I grew up in a small bayou town on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain, about 45 minutes away from New Orleans. And the trees that I first knew as a child were these giant, magnificent live oaks, Quercus virginiana, that the roads were actually built around because it was illegal to cut one of them down in the parish we live. Heck yeah. And they were massive. Some of them were close to 400, 500 years old. And they're just in the middle of the road. And it was just this fierce love of trees that set me on the life path that I find myself in today as a practicing wild witch and STEM worker, finding the synergy in spirituality and science. But it all goes back to that first love, which is trees. Aw. You know, even though we've been best friends for a couple of decades now. I didn't know that story of yours until we started working on this episode together. Not that I'm surprised that Little Angel talked to trees, but I was also, in fact, a tree whisperer as as a tyke. Back when I was in the first and second grade, we lived outside Houston, and my aunt used to walk me to catch the school bus a few blocks away, and she used to kid me that it would take three times as long because I had to say like hello to all of the trees while we were going and give them a good morning. And then on the way back, I would have to, you know, check in and see how their days went and make sure there wasn't any drama among the tree community. So yeah, we both... Such a like, I think, innate thing for human beings to be tied to trees in that spiritual way. And it's really cute that you had that kind of relationship where you not only talked to the trees, but you kind of like projected some of these ideas about (laughs) the trees having drama with each other, which I'm sure they probably enjoyed the attention from (laughs) just having somebody sit and talk to them. Because I think that some trees really do, they know that we're there and the, the older they are, the more sort of presence that they have. And that's one of the reasons that I, for this episode, I wanted to talk about big trees as far as like trees that are gotten very large, usually because they're mm-hmm. old or because of specifically the species that they are. And I came up with this episode in part thanks to the Facebook community that now both of us are a member of called Big Tree Seekers. And it's an entire Facebook community of people from all over the world who basically go out and look for big old trees. 
And I was a big tree seeker before I even knew there was a community about it. So when I joined, I was able to post a bunch of photo dumps from magnificent, old, unique, or significant trees, including the redwoods in California, Oregon, California coast, the bald cypress from one of the last remaining old growth cypress swamps in Mississippi, and the Valley of the Giants, which is a BLM land holding of one of the last remnants of old growth dug fir forest in the coastal mountain range. Unique or significant trees, including the redwoods near the Oregon, California coast, the bald cypress from one of the last remaining old growth cypress swamps in the world, that was in Mississippi, and the Valley of the Giants, a BLM land holding of one of the last remnants of old growth Douglas fir forest in the coastal mountain range. As my post got a lot of attention, I just got more and more excited to get out and see more big trees and share them with this group. And it's also great because it's people from all over the world. So I get to see big trees all over, including ancient yew trees of Ireland and Scotland to huge red gum trees in Australia. And it has been affirming to find this worldwide community of people who seem to share my deep love and reverence of big trees. Among some of the oldest organisms in the world include big old trees, such as the 40,000-year-old aspen stand, whereas mostly aspen live underground. They can continually shoot up stems and suckers throughout their entire lifetime. So scientists have found that this aspen in Utah is around 40,000 years old. Of course, the oldest and largest organism in the world is the humongous fungus, which is an amarilla fungus that is slightly parasitic to an entire forest in central northern Oregon. But among the largest and oldest living organisms that we have on this planet are trees. And not that we are in any way unique in terms of how we have a reverence for trees. Cultures throughout time have venerated trees as deities from the world tree of Norse mythology, Yggdrasil, to the sycamore of ancient Egypt mythology that was where the gods found some of the remains of Osiris that Isis then used to beget their son Horus. I just feel like trees have to be one of the most important symbols of nature, magic, health, life, death, cosmology, portals to the other world. It seems like across human cultures, if people lived near trees, then trees were central to their material lives and their spiritual lives. So I did a little bit of looking into some of the common themes that we see around trees in human mythology and uh, human myths and society. And the one that really sticks out to me and focuses on big tree energy is the idea of the Axis Mundi or the cosmic tree. You know, we have a lot of other trees like the tree of life or the tree of knowledge or a tree of healing, which are all great and really central to how we see trees. But the Axis Mundi itself is by definition just obscenely large. And so I think it's a good way of tapping into big tree energy. So the Axis Mundi is the center of the earth and it's really the center of the cosmos as well. It's often important as connecting the individual or a society to the farthest reaches of reality, to the upper world, of the highest branches, to the lower world, 
with really deep roots. And this is such an ancient and widespread view of the tree that there seems to be something ubiquitous in human societies throughout history of seeing the idea that a tree represents being able to visit the highest world, the lower world, but also anchoring our current reality. So the world and some of these mythologies is like the surface of the earth, which is where we all live, and it's, it's anchored and centered at the great tree. So these trees are really portals. And in more extreme versions, like we find in the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads, the Axis Mundi tree is coextensive with all of reality. It is everything. It is the stuff of all being. It's not the only metaphor used in Hinduism for that, but it's it's one that's there. In less extreme versions, like those that we see in some cultures in Oceania, the tree connects the earth and the sky, and so it's huge, but it's not necessarily described as the all-embracing essence of reality. But even going about 900 years before the Common Era in Mesopotamia, the Chaldeans called their Axis Mundi, and this is a quote from a hymn of theirs, O thou who givest shade, Lord who casteth thy shadow over the land, which one author says is perfectly applicable to a big tree. In the Americas, from about 1,000 in the Common Era to 1,500, we have the Mississippian cultures. That's basically the southeast, but also going all the way up the Mississippi River to what's today called Wisconsin. They had a huge cultural belt, and we see in various different formations the idea of the Axis Mundi as the great cedar tree, and they would put these giant poles in the center of their largest plazas, and this was a mound-building string of cultures. The submerged base of one cypress pole at Cahokia, which is one of the most well-preserved sites that we have contemporary, the submerged base of the cypress pole itself was nine feet long, so archaeologists theorized that this was the center of what they call, quote, a towering size pole in the middle of their plaza, which, quote, pierced and unified the multiple planes of earth and sky. So there is across continents, if we look at Oceania or Mesopotamia or the Americas, we have a similar motif of these great trees. In fact, I think some of the only cultures that didn't really have that were like Inuit and that's simply because they right. lived above the tree line. Right, right. I mean, even if we look at like contemporary example, we have Carl Jung, who you and I just did an episode on that people should totally check out if they're interested. And for him, the Axis Mundi was the symbol of the center of each of our personal reality, which sounds like it could be considered quite small. But his famous quote, you know, it's no tree can grow to heaven unless its roots go down to hell. So even for him, connecting this to the collective consciousness. And one of the themes that we explored last time, which is the idea of the local also being universal and really present in his treatment of the Axis Mundi and the idea of the symbol of the unification of opposites and the totality of experience or the existence. And for me, each of these examples gives a real sense that a lot of us experience when we visit like the very big trees or even seeing them on the big tree seekers Facebook group and trying to get a sense of just how big these beings are. You know, for me, it's a sense of timelessness, stillness, a center, very Axis Mundi like. And I know when I lived in New Orleans for several years, 
I would bike past this live oak with a trunk that's 35 feet around and the branches reach out 160 feet. I mean, you know the live oak that I'm talking about. It's the, the tree of life over in Audubon Park. Yes. Which we've both spent quite a good bit of time just gawking at and basking in. And yeah, it just gives a sense of grounding and peace and a real sense sense of protection that I think we see similar manifestations of archetypically with big tree energy. In Buddhism, the holiest tree isn't actually a giant tree. So it almost didn't make it into talking about big tree energy. But when I was reading up on it, it still sounded like big tree energy. So the Bodhi tree, which is reputed to still be alive and in a monastery in India today, well, it wasn't giant, but it was seen as the most stable place in the world. Still this idea of the axis mundi, the stable place, the center. And so it was the only space that was seen as suitable for Siddhartha to attain enlightenment and Buddhahood, to remember his countless lives, and to actually connect with the earth. There's one aspect of the, the enlightenment where he touches the earth and the earth itself witnesses to him being ready. Like he actually has to commune with the earth, but specifically at the foot of this tree, because that's where the earth element was so concentrated and stable that it's still an axis mundi, even though it might not quite make the cut for big tree seekers. It still has definite big tree energy. Right. And I feel that any tree that we can say is old or old growth that has survived up to this point deserves our reverence and our protection in all the forest deserves it, but especially the big trees that have made it. And those of us that well, there are so have, few left. There so are. Few there left. are because oh. capitalism has torn asunder our connection to these great beings. Because in a time before capitalism and agricultural non-capitalist societies, humans had very strong relationships to trees. Oh, definitely. I found in a 1911 academic text about tree worship states that sometimes the newborn child is associated with a newly planted tree with which its life is supposed to be bound up or on ceremonial occasions, betrothal, marriage, ascent to the throne, a personal relationship of this kind instituted by planting trees upon the fortunes of which the career of the individual depends. Sometimes bows of or plants are selected and the individual draws omens of life and death. Again, a person will put themselves into a relationship with a tree by disposing it upon it, some, something which has been in close contact with them, such as a hair or clothing. Nice. You know, actually, did I, I'm not sure if I told you, but that's kind of a tradition on the land that I'm living on right now. Some of our big oak trees were planted by my husband's grandmother to celebrate the birth of her grandchildren. So each tree is connected to one of them. The giant trees that I hang out with have that connection. We have a friend who, who recently passed just a couple of days ago, and one of the first instincts that the family had was like, oh, we should plant a tree for them, which isn't really a tradition that I had growing up, probably because we moved around a lot. But with this family being more long-term on this land, it's something that I think they've been able to at least to institute is this idea of planting a tree for a, for a birth or for a passing, having it as like a, a living memorial. Right. 
Because trees do live much longer than humans, and oftentimes it takes generations of tending for certain trees. And those are the kind of trees I wanted to talk about today. Maybe not big trees, but bonsai. Have some bonsai, especially in Japan, have lived for generations and been tended by the same family for generations. In fact, there's one bonsai that I think was 300 years old and survived Nagasaki. So, oh my god, yeah, I can put a link to that in the show notes. So let's switch gears and start talking about specific big trees that we've encountered or that exist, and also maybe share some stories about specific big trees. Now, of course, the tree fecta—the oldest tree, mm-hmm. the tallest tree, and the largest tree—are all in California. And the tallest tree is in the Hyperion Valley along the Tall t- Trees Creek in. Redwood National Forest, and this is called the Hyperion tree. And I live fairly close to the redwoods, so I get out to them fairly often. I have not gotten to see this tree, and I am going to not go and see this tree in part because there's not really an established trail to get、mm, to see this、mm-hmm. tree. You have to have a special permit from the Forest Service, and it's not a simple hike. It's like over giant logs, and the the Park Service had not released the actual location of the Hyperion tree, but it got leaked online. So there's a lot more people who are going to find the Hyperion, and it's causing、mm-hmm. destruction in some of the more remote and fragile parts of. The Redwoods National Park. So the folks who want to see the tree, I would encourage you to wait until the National Park Service has established a trail, so that we can kind of minimize the impact of all of these people going into this area and seeing this tree by establishing actual trails. So there's a link in the show notes about where you can find this tree. But as I said, I think even in the pursuit of trees that are like record holders, such as this tree, it's important to remember that. There's a cost. There's an environmental toll of us seeking these big trees, and that sometimes, in order to protect them, we need to make them more accessible to more people, such as the case with the Hyperion, as a way to keep them from being damaged or having people damage the environment to get to them. Yeah. So, what is the potential damage? Redwoods are unique in that they don't have very deep roots. They're、oh. actually their roots are fairly shallow for the size of the tree, and they walking on the forest does like in some of the particularly fragile parts of the forest, it can damage the trees. Like, but、mm-hmm. really, the the damage to the trees also come from building roads. Off-road vehicles, things that cause soil disturbance, and also people hiking in this forest where they bring trash, or being that this is a remote area, human waste, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. these can all have very detrimental effects. And of course, climate change is 
the always the big elephant in the room whenever we're talking about anything having to do with nature so climate change will definitely have an impact on the redwood populations especially the last remaining old growth populations because there's only like a very narrow area where these giant trees can live and it's it's Mm. actually really striking how of a narrow particular range these trees have and some of the really tall ones they they're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old so we're not Mm going to get can growth huge colossal redwood for any time in our lifetimes so as far as like having to replant them in places that they can continue to survive as the climate changes we won't get to see the the big trees it will have to be something that generations hopefully from now will get to enjoy. Mm-hmm. But the redwoods totally. definitely get a lot of attention when it comes to big trees and they are incredibly magical. And I feel very fortunate to get to live so close to them and spend more time with them. You are very fortunate to live so close to them. And I'm very fortunate to have a friend who lives so close to them. So I was just looking at the pictures from when I did a road trip out your way and got to drive through Humboldt Redwoods State Park. And it's just unbelievable. Like looking at the pictures, I don't remember the trees being this big, probably just because, you know, it it seems outlandish. Like they are outlandishly big trees. And I just remember driving around and making us pull over so I could run out and gawk at how big some of these are, and not even, you know, Hyperion, but just the, like, oh, it's on the side of the road, and it's just so massive. And I, I mean, I will say I didn't know anything about the root structure, so even those of us who care about the trees really do need to be educated in how to properly uh, and respectfully interact with that environment. I think it's super super important. I remember we were camping and we weren't even like near the redwoods. I don't even know what type of tree we were camping under. And I was just like convinced that we had to be in the redwoods because I was like, no, this is just the biggest tree I've ever seen in my life. This has to be a redwood. I don't care if the book says this is definitely not a redwood. Like it just didn't even occur to me that trees could get bigger than that. And then we drove into the redwoods and it was, I, I, just lost composure for a little bit by the presence of some of these trees for sure well you've been next to the largest tree in the world which i have not gotten to see and the oh largest... general sherman huh yes and that's a the yes. giant sequoia in the giant sequoia national park it just doesn't look like a real thing like it looks like something that just shouldn't logically exist The central aspect of that memory for me is not even being next to General Sherman, which is an amazing experience. It's actually walking up to General Sherman because even before you can ever see General Sherman, they have it marked out as far as if General Sherman were to fall, like what part of the tree you would be at. So you're like a long way from this tree Um, and you start seeing these things on the ground it's like oh this again just doesn't even make sense how big this tree is like it seemed like they couldn't be telling the truth 
but they were, and it's totally wild. And General Sherman is one that has a lot of fencing, sending people to General Sherman, maybe as compared to Hyperion or like really suggesting, go see this tree. I feel less concerned about General Sherman. Well, yeah, um, the, the the Park Service has built that infrastructure around General right. Sherman to handle the traffic of people who come to see General Sherman. Right. And right. they it recently is. have installed a actual hiking path through the the last part of the tree factor, the oldest tree in the world, which is a bristlecote oh. pine called Methuselah. So the the Park Service has also built infrastructure so you can see the oldest tree in the world now, which up to this point had, I think, been a secret because they didn't want people to go out there. But then the Internet. The Internet happened. The Internet happened. And so they decided that people were going to seek out the oldest living tree that they were going to need to put some kind of like infrastructure around it to protect the tree but also to be able to handle the capacity of people who are seeking that tree and you know it's important to kind of have this sort of infrastructure to protect them because once these trees are gone for whatever reason that's it these thousands Mm -hmm. of years of old tree that had survived up to that point is gone. And this was sadly the case for the largest bald cypress tree in which was located in Longwood, Florida, and it was known as the Senator tree. And this tree was, I believe, 1500 years old. So it had basically survived well, well before the United States was a country. And even well before that, it had seen civilizations rise and fall. But unfortunately, this tree was burned down by a woman on accident. And it it kind of has a sad history that the woman was experiencing addiction. And of course, mm-hmm. that's what the Florida News grabbed onto in terms of the story and basically dehumanized her. But it is also very sad that this tree lost like was basically consumed by fire when if it had not been burned down it would have continued to probably live until some other natural disaster took it out did that tree have any type of infrastructure around it or was it just yeah it did it was in a park it was in a it had oh, like okay. a boardwalk around it and that's mm-hmm. actually how she could access the tree and so right. she would sit under right. the tree and do some various controlled substances, which is what caused right. the tree to burn. It just kind of was one of those sad stories as I was looking up various different old trees that are found throughout the country. But let's talk about a, a big tree that you know and you've gotten to visit that is still alive and very much accessible for people to visit and that's the the angel oak yes yes so the angel oak is on john's island in south carolina and it's another one of these giant live oak trees that is just it's an explosion in the air that has just solidified into life covering this massive area and they do have a lot of protections in place the day that I was able to go 
there were a lot of people around. But it gave me an opportunity to see the structure that they have in place of having people out to make sure that people aren't harming the tree. Mm -hmm. No one is going to accidentally burn down the tree, hopefully with people around. So I do, I am really encouraged that they're taking steps to protect Angel Oak and propping up some of the branches and really taking some good responsible steps there to help keep this, this tree alive and available and really accessible to people. Of course, it has the benefit of being on an island that's fairly well developed and not in the middle of uh, a giant forest or a benefit, at least for accessibility. They did a good job. South Carolina, you're doing a good job with that. If you know, maybe not everything with that specific thing. Yes, I appreciate Angel Oak. Another addition which pops up on the big tree seekers fairly regularly. Right, pretty often. Yeah, but it's well worth it. I never like see a picture of Angel Oak and go like, oh no, another picture of Angel Oak. Right. Uh, it's, it's always welcomed because it really is just magnificent. It, it feels like elephantine to me, like what I imagine the energy of hanging out with elephants is. Although I haven't hung out with elephants, I imagine it would be something something similar. Let's talk about a cypress swamp that you and I got to visit yeah. in Mississippi up in the Delta. And I had found the out. Last... Yes. Yeah. It was one oh, of the, the last... last old growth. <laughs> the one of the last old growth cypress swamps in the country. In the, world. in the world. In the world. Mm -hmm. In the world. Yes. And it was a really long drive. But mm -hmm. I think it was interesting because both of us have spent a good portion of our life in this state being able to drive from one end to the other in search of these giant trees. And we finally got to them right at sunset. And there's this really mm -hmm. awesome boardwalk that takes you around the trees and over the water. And some of these trees were like 12 hundred years old so they survived so many hardships and i i thought you were gonna mention something interesting in terms of the history of these cypress swamps and oh definitely abolitionist movements yeah yeah so one of the things that i mean i love everything about the cypress swamps and cypress are related to the redwoods so they're the closest thing that we closer to the Atlantic have to really connect with that type of energy that you get from the redwoods. But they grow in swamps. They have knobby knees that come up that sometimes you might step on while you're jogging and it hurts really bad. But they're just absolutely beautiful trees. And being out in swamps, some of these cypress stands were places that were not suitable for large-scale agriculture, which meant not suitable for the institution of slavery and the horrors of much of the history of the southern part of what's now the United States. And because of that, Native American indigenous communities were able to find refuge in these swamps, in these, these tree allies. And that was also continued with people who had been enslaved to were able to de facto gain their freedom by joining with Native American communities or creating their own communities out in these swamps. And even during the Civil War, 
some of these cypress swamps became seats of actual militarized resistance to the Confederacy and to the slave system. And it's, it's a huge and, and complex history, but that's really centered in these cypress stands as outside of the social order that was being imposed by what became the Confederacy. Yeah, I I did know this history, but we were watching that movie, what is it, Jones County? Free uh, State of Jones. The Free State of Jones, yeah. And one yeah, of the ways with Matthew they, McConaughey. Yes, they were able to basically hold out against the Confederacy was that they hid in these old swamps that were sort of these liminal places that yes. safety to uh, marginalized people. I will say I thought that movie was terrible, but that's just, I think most movies are not great. And that movie was not much of an exception, but I do think that the story of the free state of Jones and the story of a multiracial community fighting against the Confederacy on the side of freedom is a story that we need to understand a little bit better alongside grappling with the horrific aspects of our history. I think sometimes we can also use stories of resistance and stories of cross-race unity as part of the mix and as part of the, the traditions that we can that we can draw on and that we can grow from. So I definitely recommend reading the book, The Free State of Jones, which you can find, you know, at your local bookseller. So I do definitely recommend reading about the Free State of Jones. There's a book called The Free State of Jones that is excellent. And, you know, if you like typical Hollywood movies, you might really love the Matthew McConaughey version of it. I might just be a curmudgeon. So don't necessarily take my word for it. Let's let's get back to Big Trees. Big uh, Trees! <laughs> recently, a book has come out called In Search of the Mother Tree, and it's mm. by an ecologist at UBC named Suzanne Simard, whose work I've been familiar with for quite a long time because she studies the mycorrhizal interactions between trees and how trees are able to share resources and even take part in parental care of their smaller trees. And what Samar's research- And it's not just their- they're babies, right? Right, Isn't it, right. That's what. That's why these these big old trees are so important. Is because not only do they support their own offspring, they support the entire forest by being these nodes in these giant mycorrhizal networks. Because the older the tree gets, the more diverse the mycorrhizal community. And so, when you have these old growth trees in a forest, they basically are these nodes in these huge, complex communication and resource sharing networks mitigated through the mycorrhizae. And the tree, the mother trees are, just as their name suggests, mothering the entire forest. And so this is a really like way that we can support the idea of why it's important to preserve and protect these giant large trees because they have this important role in the forest ecosystem. And I'm hoping 
as we continue to realize how our actions and are impacting the entire planet that will start prioritizing saving and protecting these mother trees these ancient old growth trees because the not only do they have this inherent value as these spiritual beings but also because they have such an important function in in these forest ecosystems where they essentially are providing resources and connection throughout the entire forest. This new research has come out in the last couple of years, and there's a really awesome podcast series by Oregon Public Radio that talks about this as well as the timber wars here in the Pacific Northwest and the fight to try to preserve these ancient old growth trees from being completely logged. Mm which many, many of them were. And the logging industry is a very important entity even today. And I feel that there's a lot of complexity when it comes to logging because we are, we are so dependent. But at the same time, I feel that logging should not be able to have access to old growth trees anymore. I feel like old growth trees have inherent value in of themselves. So let's also talk about some other big trees that you can possibly locate if you're close or plan a trip to. And I did want to mention the large trees along the Quinault Lake, which is up on the Mm -hmm. Olympia Peninsula. And there's several trees that like the largest Western red cedar in the world is around this lake. And these trees are a collection of various different species of old growth. And then going outside of the United States, there are some really impressive old growth trees, including the oldest ginkgo tree in the world, which is a 1400 year old tree at a this one is actually at a monastery and there had been sort of this idea i had heard somewhere that the reason why ginkgo continued to exist was because they were cultivated in monasteries and because ginkgo is the only surviving species of an entire phylum of plants that basically died out. And they were this sort of transition between angiosperms, which are flowering plants, from your gymnosperms, which are cone-bearing plants, like your conifers. And so the ginkgo is kind of like this, this missing link between them. And there's fossils that go back 200 million years that show basically the same morphology of the ginkgos we know today. So how is it that ginkgo was able to survive, whereas the rest of its lineage died out? And in part, it was because it was being grown in monasteries, but the tree had been basically cultivated by people in specifically Japan and Korea and China for even longer than the monasteries have been here. So this tree was an extremely 
culturally important tree throughout Asia. And this is one of the reasons why ginkgo continues to be found as opposed to the rest of the plants in its grouping in the phylum, which all died out. And there's an interesting article that kind of goes over some of the evidence for that and I have in the show notes. Even if it wasn't in monasteries, I was going to ask you, well, do you think that human human behavior is still responsible for the protection of the trees? Or do you think that it would would have survived without human intervention? I don't um, think it would have. Okay. Honestly, that it was human intervention that prevented it from just being another record in the fossil record because everything else that was related to it was killed off. So I think it was specifically humans that kept it from basically just being part of the fossil record, which is interesting because one for humans doing something. That means that humans have been like actively cultivating this tree since possibly thousands and thousands of years. All right, you trees, you're all ready to talk about the you, right? You are some of the last remaining old growth trees that you can find in Europe. And in part, this is because you is toxic. You can actually, their scientific name is actually taxica, which means toxin. And these trees also have a lot of various different cultural and even spiritual significance in pre-Christian Europe. And the fact that these trees were able to survive, whereas especially on the British Isles, where most trees were cleared, save these specific trees, but most of the trees and forests were cleared for pasture and grazing. So the fact that these trees continue to survive even after the mostly the the commons, the ending of the common land throughout Europe is very impressive. And these trees, they, they have their own sort of presence and magic that is very palpable. I have only seen Pacific U, but I hope to go visit and see some of the fairy trees in Ireland. I think the oldest U tree in the world is about 3000 years old and it's found in the UK. So I'm going to read a little bit about you from this book, Uh, Under the Witching Tree by Corin Boyer. And it says, you is a toxic tree, the seeds and needles being the most poisonous part of the plant. Death occurs as a result of heart respiratory failure. It is a slow growing tree. There are only about eight species in the genus Taxus, the Latin meaning toxic. One of the oldest living trees is a yew tree estimated to be 3000 years old in Penshire, UK. Another yew tree in Capultec, Mexico is said to be around 6,000 years old. As the yew gets bigger and older, it can lose part of its inner trunk and still be healthy. The old trees look spooky with huge hollowed out trunks that can be enclosed one like a tomb connected to both earth and the sky. So this is a tree that had a lot of association with death, but also life. And there's some idea that Yggdrasil was actually a yew tree as opposed to an ash tree because the 
Old English ir, which means bow made of yew wood, has the same roots as ewas, which is meant for the yew. So, and that's, that's awesome. Do you think we find much flora that crosses the Atlantic like that? That's that old that really obviously pre predates European set yeah. or settlement and conquest. Is that is that fairly common? I'm surprised to hear that two of the oldest specimens of the yew are in the UK and in Mexico. Well, they're different species, but okay, yeah. As far as like having different species that live that long, yeah, I think that's pretty unique for you. That yeah. it is a tree that is literally found throughout the world and it lives so long because a lot of the other old trees like you're not going to find redwoods unless they're planted anywhere mm -hmm. else except coastal california and a little bit of oregon and you're not going to really find a lot of the giant sequoia anywhere except the, their area and of course australian gum trees which is kind of like their big trees they are pretty exclusive to australia so the fact that you trees are found throughout the world and there are many very old old trees that is makes something pretty remarkable about them by wanting to be in the presence of these big trees we have to keep in mind first like the impact that we have being there also as far as like honoring these trees as these bioregional powerful spirits of the land it's important to remember here in the United States, of course, that these trees have survived the genocide of entire cultures that once revered them. And so when you're visiting these big trees, I think it's important to kind of connect the land back to the indigenous people, the first people to have a connection with the spirits of this land and the spirits of these trees. Then when you're looking for big trees, one of the ways that you can find them is looking them up by tree species. So looking at their sort of old growth tree species that are dominant in your area. So for instance, there are a lot of dug fir where I live. So I've gotten to visit some of the areas where the last remaining old growth dug fir are because I was able to kind of use that as a way to narrow my searches. Now, when you're visiting these trees, leave it better than you found it. Erase other humans' trace. Take a garbage bag and have this be part of your spiritual practice of visiting them because you are honoring the land spirits and giving them an offering by taking care and stewarding the land around them. So whenever I visit trees, I always make a point to try to pick up any trash I find because that's just part of my, my spiritual practice. And it's also the best thing you can do for that tree. In Europe, people, they'll go especially to the yew trees, which they're like called fairy trees, and they'll, they'll hang things on them and tie things on them, or they'll throw coins. Just don't do this. Like, it's uh, unless the tree has been used and utilized, like some trees in Asia have like hundreds and hundreds of years of offerings on them. But if a tree is in the forest, the best offering you can give them is water or 
picking up any kind of human disturbance or trash that you find in the in the confines of their territory. And also fighting climate change. You know, yes. I think that's another great offering that we can have for for the trees. Right. It's- so what you can do to help save big trees is there are in a lot of states heritage tree programs so that if you happen to have a big tree in your on your property you can get it registered in the heritage tree program or if you find a big tree in in a certain area or a tree that has some kind of historic or heritage importance you can register these trees with these programs and that kind of helps set up a little bit of more protection and tracking to make sure that nobody cuts down these big trees or if they're damaged in a storm what we could do to basically support the tree and then of course there are organizations that are working to protect old growth and i'll make sure to put some links to some of these organizations in the show notes and i think is like People living in this particular point, the beginning of the 21st century, where we're seeing this rapid globalization happening as we go through our adulthood, that it's important to think of ourselves as the ancestors that the witches of the future will honor because we were the ones to help save the last remaining old trees. And that this sort of new awakening of consciousness and and the witchcraft and the neo-paganism movement this should be something that we really devote a lot of energy time and resources to ensuring that these old trees are protected so that future generations of witches and pagans will get to connect with them in meaningful ways maybe make their own podcast or whatever's around (laughs) in the next you know 200 years (laughs) I like that about being the ancestors. Yes. And continuing the work to protect the big trees and by extension protect these huge ecosystems, oases of life. Well, thank y'all for joining us. We hope to be back soonish for our next episode, which will be another long promised topic roses. We'll talk about the occult significance of roses, as well as some of the amazing medicinal aspects of simply inhaling the divine scent, as well as some recipes of things you can use roses for. So please join us next time. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, please let us know at questions at sciencewitchpodcast.com. Also, you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram as the Science Witch Podcast or on Twitter as podcast underscore witch. Join us next time. Until then, live long, prosper, and blessed be. Blessed be.